This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I visit with Susan Divers, Senior Advisor on LRN. This is part of my continuing series looking back on changes in compliance in the last decade. It includes the heavy enforcement by the Department of Justice, leading to companies investing in compliance, the evolution of compliance programs, how the change has been to emphasize your risks, the new use of data in compliance, and the trends in compliance going into the 2020s and forward. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for my continuing series on our retrospective look back over the past 10 years or so in compliance today. I'm extraordinarily pleased to have with me Susan Divers. Susan is a senior advisor to LRN. We've known each other for, I don't know how long, but a long time. Uh, Obviously, well-known in the compliance community and for her work at LRN. So, Susan, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, Tom, it's my pleasure. It's not often that we get a chance to really put our heads over the foxholes and talk about strategy and the general direction that the ethics and compliance area is going. So, Susan, I was initially introduced to compliance in maybe 05, 06, uh, doing some background work for a corporation that was then under investigation. I then went to a company that uh, in 2007 had the largest FCPA fine in the history of the world ever as part of the new management team to implement a new compliance solution or create one. And so I kind of grew up in the era of very robust uh, DOJ enforcement and really the first wave. And I was wondering if maybe you could start there and and how you saw compliance sort of evolve from that, maybe 04 to 07 or maybe even 2010 timeframe. Oh, I'd be happy to, Tom. Well, I think starting with the sort of heavy enforcement prosecutorial roots of ethics and compliance programs is a good place because, as you know, what really kicked off uh, the focus on ethics and compliance programs and the investment in them by corporations was the sentencing guidelines. And that really uh, was the genesis and because the genesis was in the prosecutorial area, in other words, if you invested in an effective ethics and compliance program, you could reduce the amount of bad consequences if you had a misconduct incident. Um, in the early days, the period that you're mentioning, um, I think the focus was still very much on prosecutions, negative incentives, and rules. Um, And so, for one example, um, after the financial crisis, the first one, um, SOX came along. And SOX, I've still never been able to figure out how many pages are in SOX. Um, You can't Google it. Um, And SOX is one layer of rules after another. And yeah, you have to have rules, but there started to be a dawning recognition both on the part of regulators and also in the compliance community, that rules alone and negative um, uh, bases for compliance weren't working, weren't enough. Susan, we're both uh, by professional background lawyers, 
And I certainly in that time frame thought of compliance as a legal response to this increased enforcement. And to my mind, that meant rules, it meant policies, it meant procedures, it meant training on those, and then leaving everybody to just follow the rules because that's what lawyers think everyone do. do. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) the real world is not quite like that. And certainly businesses don't always adhere to specific rules and regulations, even if there are company policies and procedures. How did we begin to see an evolution to companies crafting compliance programs that actually fit the business? It's a good question. Um, In preparation for our talk today, Tom, I went back and Googled Mary Jo White's statements, um, and they go back some time um, when she was the chairman, chairwoman of the SEC. Um, And I think she uh, articulated the answer very well. Um, We began to see that despite um, probably billions of dollars in investment worldwide um, in terms of ethics and compliance professionals, policies, systems, um, that it wasn't working. Um, You could do all of that and you could have a program that could pass muster in terms of the checklist. They have code of conduct, they have training, they have audit, but you could still have Wells Fargo um, or you could still have Volkswagen or you could still have um, most recently Goldman Sachs um, just paid, uh, I think it was $4 billion for the one MDB scandal. So there, became to, there came to be a recognition that rules alone don't work Um, and that something was missing. And so the focus by the regulators began to really shift towards culture at that point. Uh, One of the interesting things I observed, as you know, I've uh, I've always uh, lived in Houston and practiced in the energy industry, and I began to see more of a business response to compliance. And that response was along the lines of, there are three majors, Shell, Chevron, um, et cetera, who are the producers of gold standard Exxon have gold standard policies. And then there's a level below that called the service companies, Halliburton, Weatherford, uh, Baker Hughes, and Schlumberger. And they do all the work. So if you wanted to work in the oil field industry, you had to contract with one of those four companies, literally down to a $15 million software company that had one piece of software that did one thing. But you had to have a compliance program. Sure. And those service companies mandated that all the way down their supply chain, you not only had to have a compliance program, but they would go audit your program. And so I began to see really a business response to this increased enforcement by pushing down compliance through the supply chain. And it really struck me that that this is how business saw a way to primarily to protect themselves, but I found the byproduct to be more compliance. And greater knowledge of compliance. Certainly people like you and I work with those companies, but also the executives began to understand. The CEOs the, and more importantly, the boards of directors in the energy space began to understand. Did you see that type of evolution in either the energy industry or perhaps other industries as well? Definitely, Tom. Um, and, and that focus on the supply chain, I think, continues to this day um, and hopefully is having a leavening impact um, in, in other cultures, um, in Asia, for example, or Africa. Um, and you're right. Part of it was pragmatic business 
sense, which is I can get in trouble if I contract with another company and it turns out they're going out and um, using bribery and corruption as a means of getting business. So I'm on the hook for that. I mean, that's always been the case from the very beginning of, of the FCPA, um, the standard of do you have reason to know that you're contracting with someone that, that may go out um, and use unethical means. So in the first instance, I think it was pragmatic. But in the second instance, um, I really give the business community a lot of credit, uh, having worked in it for most of my career, if not all, um, because people genuinely started to internalize that this wasn't something that the legal department did and that it wasn't to check the box. Um, it was something that really fit in with a sustainable, profitable, and successful business model. And as an aside, as I think you know, LRN has done a lot of research over the years um, on uh, the impact of having good governance in a company. Um, it really it substantially increases innovation. It substantially increases creativity. Uh, it prevents misconduct. And in the end, companies that have that commitment and real model that's sustainable um, do much better in terms of profit. And Ethisphere has done a lot of good research in that area too. So it's a long-winded way of saying um, it, it was minds in the beginning, but then it became hearts too. Not everybody, but I think there's much more recognition today that using that having a robust ethics and compliance program is good business. Susan, you mentioned the DOJ's evolution as well, and I really wanted to, to maybe move up to the 2015 timeframe because uh, the then Assistant Attorney General Leslie Caldwell gave a series of speeches um, about what uh, the Department of Justice expected from a compliance program. We didn't know it at the time, but they were working on things like Wei Chin's original evaluation of corporate compliance program. But these were great pieces of information because it, it didn't, we didn't have to read the tea leaves. We could listen to her speech and she would go down the list of elements that the DOJ was looking for. We saw then, of course, was the release of the original evaluation of corporate compliance programs in 2017. We had additional information even in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy released later that year. And the um, um, DOJ has continued to give us information as they evolve in their thinking. Has that helped the compliance community move the ball forward in your opinion? Very much so, Tom, although I think it's important to think about how uh, or what the, the guidance really is. As you and I know, having practiced in this area for a long time, um, it, it can achieve kind of the status of dogma the minute it comes out. Um, you know, it's as if the Pope released it. Um, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, it's important to go through it and to look at what the regulators are saying. Um, but what they're saying, the way I read it, um, and I just went back and, and reread a bunch of it in preparation for our talk, um, is they're saying, first, don't have a checklist compliance program. Um, have one that's real. Um, and the, the recent guidance um, in 2019, of course, focused very much on 
is your program actually working in practice? We don't care what it really looks like. I mean, it's great if you reinvent your code every year, but if it doesn't work in practice, um, then that's a waste of time. In some ways, it's not going to get you credit uh, if you come in and have difficult conversations with prosecutors. So there was a big push away from checklist compliance, and there was a big push towards effectiveness. And I think Hui Chen was, was one of the people substantially behind that. Um, and then another really interesting um, push that I think the regulators are making, and I saw it in the 2012 FCPA guidance, was focus on your real risk areas. Um, that's where your program needs to go. And I know when the 2012 guidance came out, for the FCPA, uh, there was frustration at DOJ because they were getting, I don't know, thousands of calls over the years on, um, can I give people coffee? Give, can I give government officials coffee and donuts when they come in? Um, and so people were focusing on the small stuff and not focusing their resources, time and effort enough on the big stuff. And so I think the guidance in 2012 was a push towards really looking at your risks and really tailoring your program to your risks. And that's continued in spades um, in 2020 this year. Um, looking at the guidance that came out in June, there's much more emphasis on tailoring your program to your specifics. Um, for example, in the training area, which is LRN's um, main activity uh, as a company, um, making sure that you have customized training that addresses specific scenarios that really occur in your um, organization or area of work and looking at the risks that people face in the company and tailoring training t towards that, um, you know, that's specifically in the guidance. Um, so the bottom line there is that your risks are your risks. They're not anybody else's necessarily. And your program should reflect those and it shouldn't be static. Um, it shouldn't be a snapshot. Uh, in time, it should be something that's continuously adapting, much the same way as business risk assessment continuously adapts to the situation on the ground. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, I guess um, from your uh, position at LRN, uh, you, have, you and I have had the opportunity to do some work together and uh, also lots of podcasts about your research. But I was wondering in terms of your client base, has this been a message that they have responded to as you have taken them uh, through or at least to some new training tools and to really help them understand their need to evolve? Um, and I think that's in part because um, our, our uh, chairman of the board, Dove Seidman, whom you know, has always been uh, one of the most articulate and foresight, uh, farsighted people in this area and his focus on values and his focus on moral leadership tends to attract companies that are very committed in that way. Um, and it also tends to attract companies and partners who are very interested in best practices 
and in continuous improvement. So every year we do, as you know, a program of effectiveness report. And um, this year we're focused on the changes that COVID has wrought um, in the ethics and compliance area, which if you think about it is one of the biggest risk risks to hit um, everyone um, in the last 20 years. And um, what we'll be doing is analyzing what are the best practices that have arisen as a result of COVID and also what hasn't worked and where do people need to refocus their efforts. So yes, we, we find that, that our partner base in particular has a great interest in those types of questions. Susan, uh, one of the things that has struck me the most about the coronavirus health crisis and COVID-19 has been that trends that were percolating maybe in 2018, 2019, uh, have sped up almost exponentially in COVID-19. Obviously, working from home is is a, a large one. You and I have worked from home for a long time, so uh, <laughs> not a new trend for us. But um, the Department of Justice talked about uh, data in the 2020 update in a way that they probably hadn't emphasized before. And this new use of data to allow compliance practitioners to almost engage in a continuous monitoring, continuous improvement. Is this uh, something that you you guys at LRN are seeing or you're seeing? And is, is this something that's going to perhaps con- continue to accelerate even more as we move into 2021 and 2022? We do do that at LRN. Our platform is is one of the most robust available, and it allows you to pull real-time data um, in terms of people's training experiences and what what areas are receiving the most attention or the most uh, difficulty for the employee base. Um, but I think that that's, that's here to stay. Um, and it's interesting to me that the DOJ went out of its way in, in the June guidance this year to note that policies should be searchable. And that doesn't necessarily say data, but that's what it means in the end. Because if you have your policies on your web and you're able to pull data as to who's clicking on what and how often, then that tells you a ton about where you need to focus and where your risks are. Um, So I I think it's here to stay. I think it's still in the process of evolving because you know, pe- some people I think are going overboard and thinking that they can cut their teams because they can use data. And I don't think that's the right conclusion. Um, but that's definitely a trend that's accelerating. And the other one that I see accelerating too is going mobile. Um, I think people increasingly will realize that the more they can put their program, um, the key elements of it um, into a mobile friendly format, so that the program goes with the employee rather than the employee having to chase around um, to find the program. I think that's that's a best practice that's starting to accelerate as well. Susan, uh, one of the other things that struck me about the 2020 guidance is that it really emphasized to the compliance practitioner, you have a wealth of information inside your own organization. Yes, some of it's data, some of it's written materials, obviously hotline reports, Um, uh, but there's a lot of information that you can use to improve your program. 
And so I was really gratified to see them emphasize that information and that it's sitting there for the compliance practitioner to utilize. Is that a message that's also resonating with your partner base? It, it is, Tom. Um, there are some practical difficulties um, because y- you may have data, but it may not be in a format that's easy to use um, or, or um, and it may be in a format that's incompatible with other formats within the company. So there's a lot of practical issues to overcome in that area. Um, but yes, um, people are beginning to realize that they really have at their fingertips data that could um, tell them um, where their risks are, where people need more help. Um, and also from an operations point of view, um, it can provide um, insights to the business in some key respects, too. Susan, are there any other trends that you'd like to highlight that you or LRNC as uh, coming out of COVID or uh, trends going forward? Uh, another one, Tom, that we haven't touched on is ease of access. I mean, I sort of touched on a little bit with mobile, but um, the fact that DOJ in June said policy should be searchable, um, that certainly implies that, that they can be searched. And if you have a 50-page FCPA policy um, that's written in legal jargon, um, who cares if it's searchable or not? It's, it's probably going to be unintelligible nonetheless. Um, so we do see much more focus on ease of access, and we see much more focus on the user. Um, LRN, for example, we make it very easy for people to customize um their learning courses they can do it the way they edit a word document and um, we just acquired interactive services and they're famous in the uh in the learning space for short modules that you can snap together and customize um so rather than sort of one size fits all um as was more the case in the past um things that are responsive to employees things that speak to them directly, and as one of our um, former partners said, um, things that work as well as Amazon. So if you're looking at gifts and entertainment policy, you should be able to click on a link and immediately um, get permission or get review, I should say, of whether you can give uh, a gift or do entertainment. So that ease of access um, I think is really going to be a trend going forward. Well, Susan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but this has just been a fascinating exploration for both of us, frankly, I think on kind of where we were, where we are, and maybe even where we're going. So I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, visit with me today. Oh, Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thanks. for Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I've linked to the K2 Intelligence FIN website and then two resources, a white paper and a client alert that they put out around the FINs and paper. So check those out in the show notes. This presentation of the FCPA Compliance Report has been a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.